everyone. Good morning. Thank you for joining us here at Axe Reform Fellowship. So we are going now, we just started the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And this was after a short session that we took in the summer to go over Psalms. We went through several of the Psalms as a uh, summer series, so to speak. And now we're starting the book of Mark. And this is barely the second message in the book of Mark. So we're going to take it uh, verse by verse and try to see what God has for us as, uh, as this account by Mark is recorded here. So with that, uh, the scripture for this week is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Mark 1, 9 through 11. So as you turn there, let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word, please. Okay, and it reads, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this couple of verses in this account of Mark, I pray that you may open up our eyes, our understanding, and that we may have an attitude of those that want to learn about you and from you, from your word, so that we may be equipped for every good work and so that we may be reminded of the repentance that we need, that you can grant us, and only you, Lord. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Alright, you may be seated. So, before we dig into the text, let me uh, give you a a couple of examples that uh, I've been involved with, which will make sense as we proceed through the text. There was a time when I, I sent a credit card payment, and then about a month later I get... Uh, I get mail from the credit card company, I open it, and it's a, a check from them to me saying, you actually didn't know anything, and here's, here's your money back. It's like, wow, that's surprising, right? For once, the creditors are actually sending me a check for a change, right? Another example that I thought of is um, going to the DMV, or actually in this case to the, to the court, to the clerk, lining up in the traffic aisle and say, hey, um, I'm here to pay a ticket. I lost my ticket. I don't know what happened. Uh, but I think I may have more than one ticket, parking tickets and whatnot, because Glendora is um, a place, a city which doesn't allow you to park in the street. So you go there and the clerk gets your license, looks you up and says, hmm, I don't see any, any record of your tickets here. So you can't pay nothing because... In the books, you don't owe nothing. So, hey, all right, it's all good, thank you. Right? So why do I give those couple of examples? Because that is going to come into play as we see this scene of the baptism of Jesus when he comes to John. And, I mean, when he, yeah, when he comes to John the Baptist, and he's kind of startled by that. Why is Jesus coming to get baptized? So, before we dig into the text, uh, I'd like to take just a few minutes to talk about the book of Mark as a whole and give us a quick introduction of 
why Mark wrote this uh, this account um, is Mark really the author about when was this account written and a little bit more background of who he wrote it to. Sometimes when we know who the author was and who he wrote it to, we kind of get a little bit more insight like, oh, okay, I see why he would say this and why he wouldn't say that. And it helps us to understand a little bit better the message that is being uh, given by the author. So, it's good to know this background. So let's kind of touch a little bit of, of, uh, of this introduction. So the author, unlike the epistles, which the epistles are the letters of the apostles and uh, that come later in the New Testament, they typically announce who writes it, like right away, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, or Peter. But in this case, it doesn't specifically tell us who actually wrote the, the account of the Gospel of Mark. But we do know from biblical evidence and history that... Mark was a very close companion of the Apostle Peter. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter alludes to Mark as a sort of a child in the faith, or a son in the faith. As well as from the book of Acts, Mark is phrased as John, who is also called Mark, like in Acts 12, um, in Acts 12.25, is mentioned multiple times, as one who was very close to Peter. So we know that he was also a cousin of Barnabas, according to Colossians 4.10. And Barnabas was a companion of Paul, but during Paul's first missional trip. Later, there was some friction between Paul and Barnabas, which led them to kind of split, their, split ways, and each of them went to go do their own uh, ministry. But nevertheless... Later, Paul acknowledges the growth and the maturity of John Mark. And he listed him as a fellow worker of the gospel in the book of Philemon. So, with that, we know that John, who was also called Mark, who was like the right-hand man, so to speak, of the apostle Peter, is the one who was given this account. Which leads us to say, okay, so about when was this written? So based on the evidence that we have and the analysis by, by scholars, we estimate that the time frame of this account of Mark is written around 50 AD to sometime 70 AD. So this is about as close as a little bit under 20 years after the death of Christ or at worst, right under 40 years after the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, on the surface, we may think, well, that's kind of like too long. You know, like 15, 16, 20 years. How can they know? But if we put that in the context of our time, like let's say that we know somebody who survived the 9-11 attacks. If we go to them and we give them a set of questions and we interview them, they're going to tell us, pretty exact account of the recollection of what they saw, right? A, an event of this magnitude of Jesus being accused, um, convicted, he, you know, caused a big uproar, there were riots about him. So when we come and we see the people that lived with Jesus in this time, and then they go back and interview those people, 
then you could get the idea that 15, 15 to 20 years is actually not that long. And people still have a very accurate and vivid account of what they lived, what they saw, what they touched, what they experienced. So this is the basis for Mark having the account um, as accurately as um, possible related by the Apostle Peter, which was one of the people who traveled with Christ, right, in, his, in, in the time that Jesus came to this earth. So, the other question, the audience, who did he write this to? Who was it initially intended for? So, we know that unlike the Gospel of Matthew, in which the content of the Gospel of Matthew is deeply rooted in Jewish traditions and roots and genealogies, and plenty of Old Testament uh, elaboration on the customs and the lineages. Now, Mark doesn't do that. Mark kind of goes straight to the point. A word that he uses a lot is immediately, or moving along immediately. Like he's, he's very, very down to the point of the message he's trying to communicate. So he chooses his words and his style with specific purpose because his audience is primarily not Jewish, but is Gentile, specifically from Rome. So he's writing to a large um, audience that is primarily not Jewish, that is Gentile, from the region of Rome. So we do see a couple of examples in which Mark takes a little bit of extra time to kind of explain some of the Jewish traditions, because these people in, in, that are Gentiles wouldn't know. For instance, in... Uh, chapter 7, verse 3, he kind of takes a small parenthesis to explain that some of the Jews and the Pharisees didn't eat unless they went through a ceremonial cleansing and washing, right? Whereas if you were talking to Jewish people, he wouldn't need to explain that because Jewish people would be familiar with that. Another thing that we know about the, the style that he, that he writes and the background of who he's writing to is that this gospel account amidst much of the Old Testament references as compared to the, other, to the other Gospels. So what about the theme? What is Mark primarily trying to tell us? Um, Brother Kevin touched on this uh, last time when he introduced us to the first few verses. But mainly, Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant of God the Father. We learn in chapter 10, verse 45, that... He tells us, for even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So, more than the other Gospel accounts, lastly we see that Mark gives very specific focus to the humanity of Jesus, to the emotions of Jesus, His feelings, to the human limitations, like Jesus was tired, he was hungry, he wept. So we get a picture of, not only is Jesus divine, that means he is God in flesh, but also he has the side of humanity fully attributed to him. And we have this God-man who 
is divine and has the attributes and the powers of God Almighty, but yet he humbled himself and has all the attributes that we have of humans, all the limitations that we have. So that comes together in the person of Jesus, something that is referred to as a hypostatic union, perfectly unified the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus. Because as a representative of us, as we will see here a little bit later in the text, in order to represent us, he needs to have that humanity to him. And in order to make things right with God the Father, and have, so to speak, the authority to represent us, and make that covenant right, he needs to also have the divine nature. And Jesus has both. Mark gives us a lot of insight into the humanity of Jesus. He is in flesh just like we are, but yet he also has a divine nature which we do not have. So what is the style? Mark is one that gets right down to business. He doesn't go on elaborate explanations of Old Testament traditions and whatnot. This kind of reminds me of uh, certain culture in our workplace Either when somebody's writing an email, right? They, uh, hey, how you doing? Hope your is going well. And then maybe a paragraph later, then they get, hey, uh, by the way, did you have a chance to look at the spreadsheet I sent you or what, what have you? Mark doesn't do that. He goes straight. Um, an email from Mark would be, hey, is that spreadsheet done? Please send it back. <laughs> right? No, uh, no, no monkey business. Similarly, when you go and talk to somebody to follow up, one of the first things you ask is, hey, so how was your weekend? Oh yeah, I heard you, you, know, you had a birthday to go to, or your, your kids had a party, how did that go? Mark wouldn't do that. Hey, so yeah, that, uh, that proposal I gave you last week, what's the status on that, right? So that's kind of the, the feel that we get from reading Mark. He's very driven, very fast-paced, uh, and just kind of getting to the point of what he's trying to communicate and moves immediately to to the next thing. So in summary, as we take a dig into the, the study of the book of Mark, let's remember that all points to Mark being the actual author, we do have some validation of that, is most likely written in the late 50s AD. And this is primarily for a Gentile audience. So hey, unless you're Jewish, no, I'm Gentile, so hey, it's, I'm, I fit right in. It's, it's written primarily for me. And then he presents Jesus as a divine son of God who is 100% human but yet is God in flesh and has entered his creation in order to give his life as a ransom for the elect. Okay, So let's remember that. Alright, so last time Pastor Kevin gave us a great introduction of the first eight verses of this gospel account which talk about John the Baptist is pretty odd fellow, right? Having a pretty weird diet and kind of being an outcast in the wilderness. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance. We know from a, from a parallel account that John the Baptist didn't mince words. He was very direct in confronting people and telling them to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he even warned some of 
the religious uh, people of the time, he tells us, you brood of vipers, who warned you from the wrath to come? Like, why are you coming here? And he basically is rebuking them because he's saying, you come here kind of trying to save yourselves because you know that this, command is, this commandment comes from God, but yet you show no fruit of repentance. Like, what are you doing, you hypocrites? Right? So we see John the Baptist coming at them harsh, right? Getting down to the wire, telling them they need to repent. And we do see that it says many people came and they did repent and they were being baptized. So we see right from the get-go that as John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, because he says, you know, it's not me that is coming, but one that is greater than me is coming, of who I'm not even worthy to bend over and untie his, his sandal, right? So we see that John the Baptist is bringing this message of repentance. He's calling the people to come and get baptized. And one question we could ask is, well, who gave this guy the authority? Like, how do I know that he's legit? How do I know that he's preaching truth? How do we know that he's sent from God? Well, we can be assured of that not only because there's prophecies about John the Baptist coming, and then he finally hits the scene, uh, representing and making the way for the Messiah, which is right behind him. But, even more clear than that, Jesus himself validates John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament style prophets. We see that in Luke 16, 16, in which Jesus, speaking, he says, The law and the, prof and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. There's been times when I'm having conversations with, with my Mormon friends, or when they come and visit me, and, and we go over scriptures. So as they're telling me about their prophet, and even the modern prophet that they're following, I often go to this verse and I say, can you please read Luke 16, 16 aloud? The line the prophets were until John. So then I ask, so... The prophets, everyone until who? Until John, John the Baptist. Right? So, we need to keep in mind that when we're talking about new revelation, when we're talking about somebody that is saying, Thus says the Lord, Jesus says, John the Baptist is it. He's the last one. So, this validates the message that John the Baptist is bringing. This is a command from God. And he's given a, he's preaching and, and calling out to people to come and repent. And have this baptism. So, what kind of baptism is it? In, in chapter 1 verse 4, which we looked at last week, it says that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the passage we just looked at today, verses 9 through 11, we see that Jesus came and got baptized. So let's think about that for a second. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, who was preaching a baptism of repentance. So the people that were coming baptized, you know, the majority of them, presumably other than the, than the uh, religious hypocrites that John the Baptist called out, they genuinely repented, and they wanted to have their, 
uh, their sins forgiven and their life transformed. And they do come and they receive this baptism. And I kind of picture John the Baptist um, kind of doing his, his sermons or calling out his people to repent. And as they're coming, okay, good, you repent, yes, God bless you, baptize them, brings them out of Jordan. All right, next, he's going through the line, and all of a sudden, it's a whoa, whoa, Jesus. Uh, right? Now, if we were in John the Baptist's shoes, we would probably have the same reaction, right? I'm being called by God to preach a baptism of repentance, and all of a sudden, God Himself, God in the flesh, is here wanting me to baptize Him. Right? So, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think if we were in that spot, we would have the same doubts. We would probably think a little bit too highly of ourselves if we think, oh no, actually I know the exact implications of why you're getting baptized. So yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Let me tell you what I know about why you should get baptized. Right? Maybe we wouldn't be too humble if, if that's the attitude that we have. But we see that John the Baptist, so here he is kind of taken aback and knows that there's something not fitting or right about Jesus wanting to get baptized. So let me give you a couple of verses. 1 Peter 2.22 says, speaking about Jesus, that he, Jesus, committed no sin, nor any deceit was found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that He, meaning the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in all things as we have, yet without sin. John 8.46 When Jesus is dealing with the religious hypocrites who are trying to trap Him in a theological debate or battle, Jesus finally says, Hey, which one of you convicts me of sin? Bring me the evidence. In other words, if you know that I have sinned, tell me how I have sinned. Show me how. That's a pretty bold statement. I would never say that. Because people know me enough to say, Aha, well, let's start with five minutes ago. Right? So, if we are coming against our accusers and we tell them, okay, show me, where have I gone wrong? Jesus comes to the point where He plainly tells them, alright, show me where I've gone wrong, show me how I have sinned, convict me of it. But they can't. And even we learn that when they brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, at the end, what did, what did Pilate conclude? I see no fault in this man. Right? So, we see that Jesus, from all the accounts that we could tell, did not have sin. Some critics would like to say that Jesus actually did not have a divine nature and He was just a, a good man. And that would probably imply that when Jesus came to get baptized, that He would say to John the Baptist something like, well, you know, i kind of been hiding out all this time. People think I'm a pretty good person, but... Jeez, now let me just confess and let me repent. No. 
we know from Scripture, and because of the nature of Jesus, that Jesus had no need to repent. So, similarly to wanting to pay fines that we don't owe, or trying to make it right for traffic violations that we didn't commit, we can't do that because we don't owe anything. In a similar fashion, because Jesus has no sins, He has nothing to repent of. But yet, He goes and gets baptized. So, with that, let us dig into the text, finally. Verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus came from, where it says, Nazareth. This was a very small town, a very small village in the region of Galilee, which we know from Scripture and from history that had a very bad reputation. In John 1.46, when it is known that they have found Jesus, Nathaniel has found Him, but yet, Nathaniel says, when Philip tells him, hey, we found him, the one that Moses and the prophets and the law spoke about, Jesus, we found him. Nathaniel turns to him and says, hmm, could anything good come out of Galilee? Really? Like that's where the Messiah is coming from? So this doesn't necessarily mean that Nathaniel himself had prejudices against Galilee, but it does give us insight into the fact that society, culture at the time, in that region, they thought of Galilee as some really, really low place. They have a very low view of it. And, that's exactly where Jesus comes from, right? So, we know from the biblical accounts and historical accounts, that this was a region of where discrimination existed against them, and they were despised. And basically they kind of had the odds against them if you were from there and people knew that you were from there. My wife and I were fortunate to visit Nazareth a few years back when I traveled there for work. So since I was going to be there already, I, I uh, flew my wife out there when I was done with my work week and we, we spent some time touring Israel. And when we went to Nazareth, we took a tour of a... They've, they've now built a big church there. But they actually have some ruins there which are traditionally believed that that was the very house where Jesus and His family lived when Jesus was a child. Now, is that really the house? We, don't, we really don't know. But speculation and tradition says that that was a house. But what I would say, if that isn't it, because this is such a small village, if that wasn't it, and we literally look around, maybe one of those was, right? Because the place is so small. So it's um, pretty, I mean, it's pretty awesome feeling to know that Jesus was raised, maybe not here, but somewhere around here for sure. Right, so that's that's a pretty uh, a pretty awesome feeling, and that city uh, of Nazareth is still to this day 
a relatively small place. This um, population consists mainly of Arab people, uh, the majority of which are Muslim, but there are some, uh, some Christian Arabs there in the region. So, when we come to this passage, you know, it brings me to think about the circumstances under which Jesus came to this earth where he was raised, right, in Nazareth, at least for some time, and then how he lived and how he died. I think of the passage in Hebrews 2, verse 7, where it says that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. And to that, I'm just thinking, wow, not only lower than the angels, Him being God Almighty, but now He comes to earth and He's made a little bit lower than the angels, but also born in the most humble of places, right? In, in the manger in, with, with the animals, because there was no place for Him to be, to, to be born. And not only that, but also raised by a poor family in a village that was basically thought as garbage by the society of the time. So, if there ever was social economic, economic disadvantage, Jesus experienced it. Nowadays, we hear about discrimination in this and that and the other. And when we take a look... Many times the people that are claiming this type of disadvantage have it pretty good compared to the rest of the world, right? So a lot of times we, we need to take into perspective what it actually means to be in a disadvantaged situation with all the odds against you. And here we see that Jesus coming from that region is a prime example of if there ever was someone in disadvantage, it was Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus can relate to us in all spiritual and physical manners because He is fully human and He had this, um, this disadvantages against Him. And it says that He never reached into His divine nature in order to ease that. No, He didn't. He suffered and lived through it. So, Jesus came from Nazareth, and without any other explanation, Mark simply tells us that he got baptized by John the Baptist. So going back to our question a bit ago, if Jesus had no sin, if he, need, if he needed no repentance, why did he get baptized? So let's look into the context. Going to the parallel passage, which gives us a little bit more info, we look at Matthew chapter 3 around verses 13 and 14, where it says that when, John, when Jesus came to John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and John the Baptist realizes that he wants to be baptized, he's kind of taken aback. We're already talking about that, right? So, one thing to take into account here is that we have no other record of John the Baptist interacting with Jesus but to this level. We do know that they were cousins. And as a matter of fact, the first time that John the Baptist and Jesus interacted was when they were in the womb. When Mary came to visit her, uh, 
her relative Elizabeth, he gives the account that when she opened up the door to greet Mary, Scripture tells us that the baby kicked in the womb. Think about that. The first person that needed no insight of who Jesus was and reacted to it was the baby in the womb. That's pretty amazing. So in any case, they were relatives, but we have no other account of them really interacting to, to this extent until we see a, a very explicit interaction of Jesus coming and wanting to get baptized. So, John the Baptist is taken aback, he's a little bit confused, and he essentially is asking him, why do you want to get baptized? So when he asks this question, we look at Matthew, 13, uh, Matthew 3, verse 15, and Jesus basically says, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Right? To fulfill all righteousness. That's the very answer that Jesus gives to John the Baptist. So he didn't tell him, well, you know, actually, I do have some hidden things. No. Nope. To fulfill all righteousness. This, this statement, this reason that Jesus, that Jesus gives, as we will see here shortly, it reminds us of the marvelous grace that Jesus has for us. And it shows us two main things of why Jesus says that He's getting baptized to fulfill all righteousness. First, it shows us that Jesus identifies Himself and is not ashamed to identify as a human, a perfect human, with us flawed humans. The perfect human not being shamed of identifying himself with us, dirty sinners. And secondly, by this act of obedience, Jesus is showing us the importance of keeping God's statutes and commandments. The importance of obedience. Okay, so let's look a little bit more in depth into these two reasons. First, it shows us how Jesus identifies with flawed humans. So scripture does tell us that Jesus was tempted in his human nature, but yet never fell for sin. So Jesus knows what it is to be tempted in the same way that we are. We'll recall that Mark's account will show us will show us the human side of Jesus more than any of the other gospel accounts. So, in contrast to Jesus, in His full humanity, being able to not sin, when we are tempted and we do fall in sin over and over and over, it is a clear reminder that we are continuously disqualified from being declared right before God if left to our own flawed abilities. We cannot be obedient like Jesus was obedient. 
So, in fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus is not doing this because He needs it. He's doing it because you and I need it. Because perfect righteousness and perfect obedience to all the commandments that God gave are required. And Jesus is basically saying, yes, I will do that. I will do that for you. I will humble myself for you. So it leads us to elaborate a little bit on the second point. The importance of obedience that Jesus is showing us. Jesus had to keep every stipulation that God had given to His people in order to secure perfect righteousness before God the Father. The reason why Jesus is the only one to qualify as a perfect sacrifice is because He rendered a hundred percent full obedience to all of the commandments of God. Now, we, as fallen sinners, are in need of that 100% obedience that is required to be made right before God. And the only way we can do this is to have the perfect obedience of Christ to be deposited into our otherwise bankrupted moral bank account. We need the obedience of Christ. If there's a requirement that God has given is for a purpose. If He has ordained and commanded that we should get baptized, the one representing us perfectly must have the requirement met. Not because He's not perfect, but because that's what God has told us to do. And that way, the requirements that God has given are then met from the human side of of this separation that we have in order to make us right with God. So, going to verse 10, it says, And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So in this verse, we can see that in Jesus' first public ministry appearance, He gives us an illustration of His death and resurrection. Being immersed in the water, coming out in the unison of life, right? So that's a big symbolism as us becoming Christians, being born again. And then it says that He immediately saw the heavens being torn open. That is a very specific language. There's times in the Old Testament where we get the picture of how the people of God realize that they're just not able to keep up with the commandments. That they're burdened and they're crying out for help. Like, Lord, we can't do this. Like, we need you to come down. So... The book of Romans kind of expands on, at length, on the picture of how people realize that they cannot keep these commandments and they're in desperate need. Like, what was the intent of the law? Like, people were so burdened. And this phrase, the heavens being torn open, has 
very strong overtones to the Old Testament, as well as to the account in the New Testament, where it says that when Jesus gave His life for us in the cross, it says that when He finally died, that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Right? That separation from God in His infinite holiness and us being in need of forgiveness and to connect with that holiness of His, that divide now has been torn from top to bottom. Right? From God to man. Not from bottom to top. It had to be done by Him. So let us look at a couple of verses that will give us this insight into this imagery of how the, the heavens are being torn open. This is a sort of a, think of a movie that is reaching a climax or a, you know, a classical music number that is building up and building up with intensity. Well, here is very similar of how this massive buildup of the history of humanity of this tension because we as flawed humans cannot keep up and we are burdened to be able to please God in our own merits and just this emotions building up. Now this significant event of God reaching down to men is finally here. So we look at Isaiah 63 from verse 18 and then it kind of crosses over to 64 verse 1. I'll read that real quick. It's only a couple of verses. It says, Your whole people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. And then again in Isaiah 45 verse 8, it says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. So we see here a desperate cry of, Lord, please come down, reach down, tear down that division that we have between the human and the divine. Come, please, intercede. And as we see this desperate cry of humanity pleading with God, to once and for all tear down that divide, we finally see that Jesus has now begun His ministry and God has once again showed that what He promises, He keeps. And is saying, yes, Messiah, the Savior, God in flesh is indeed here. And He's here to visit you and to save you. So we see that now, as this is happening, 
this is not a vision. This is right. Sometimes scripture talks about a vision, but here we see that this is literally happening. Right? We see different accounts that this is being described by more than one people seeing this. So they actually saw this, the people who were impressed. So Messiah, the anointed one, God in flesh himself, has now arrived, thus keeping with the promise of God to reach down from heaven to rescue us. And Jesus is now on the scene about to make that happen. This is an actual occurrence, a literal event in history. God reaching down from His throne. So then it says, And the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. So just a note about this. We have you know, a lot of um, imagery in our modern evangelical context of you know, dove. And like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, let's be careful. It's, it, didn't, it doesn't say that that was the Holy Spirit. It says that it descended on Him like a dove, right, with, with the gentleness of the most, one of the most pure um, birds, with that gentleness, that's how it was seen, that as in that manner, that's how the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus' physical humanity. Verse 11 it says, A voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So this is language taken from Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is basically fulfillment of Messianic prophecies, prophecies that are now finally being fulfilled. And then we have the approval, the affirmation of God the Father declaring that this is His beloved Son. Interesting to note that in the Transfiguration passage, a virtually identical declaration from God the Father is recorded. And in that instance, He has the phrase, after He says, This is my beloved Son, and who I'm well pleased, He says, Hear Him. Listen to Him. Right, everything has built up to Jehovah sending His Son. And now He says, listen to Him. He's the one. Alright, so let's uh, start to land this plane. What have we learned and why does this matter? We have learned that Mark tells us that John is preaching the baptism of repentance. We also learned that Jesus comes and gets baptized, which initially is a bit confusing. Like, why would Jesus need to get baptized if he's sinless? He doesn't have to repent. And then we also learned that God the Father affirms Jesus. He gives full approval to Jesus and basically tells us to now follow him. So, let's take a quick look at that so that we could wrap this up. Baptism of repentance. Are we walking in repentance? Because after all, Jesus didn't need repentance. But I do. I need repentance. If we are walking in repentance, are we baptized? If we are saved and we've made a declaration of faith, are we baptized? And hence following God's command to be baptized? Or perhaps, an even harder question, 
Maybe we do have a proclamation of faith. Maybe we have gotten baptized. But are not walking in repentance. Pretending that we have a free pass. Well, you know, we're under grace. We Calvinists, right? We can do some salvation. God has our back. But that's dangerous ground. Is it not? Amen. Because Scripture warns us over and over and over. Right? We went to the book of James. It's full of that. Which says, basically, if you're saying that you are a believer, and you show no fruits and no signs of repentance, warn yourself. Do not be deceived. Over and over, right? And we should be looking to the example of Jesus, that Jesus, not needing to get baptized, He says, I still must do it to fulfill all righteousness. To show my obedience, to show my humility, to show my submission to the Father. And ultimately, not because He needed it, because the ones who do need it, that He's going to die for, is us. And it's an act of grace and love and mercy toward us. So number two, Jesus getting baptized by John the Baptist reminds us that although Jesus didn't need repentance, He shows us the importance of keeping God's commands of obedience. Right? We kind of already covered that. And then, God the Father affirms Jesus as the Messiah. As the one who we, sh who we should follow and listen to. So are we listening to Jesus? Right? Jesus made many claims, among which are that He is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Him. No one. He said, I don't care who you are. Religious leader, religious person, devout person. I, I don't care. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus also said, come to Me. All you who are worried, you are heavy laden, you're carrying these big burdens. He said, come to Me. I will give you rest. Just to give us a couple of examples of what Jesus says. Jesus also says, come and follow me. Right? So are we listening to the commands of Jesus? Jesus also says to the woman that is caught sinning. He says, I forgive you. He says, now go and sin no more. So is not this everlasting free pass of, yeah, you know, keep sinning. What does the Apostle Paul says? So should we just keep sinning so that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. But rather that because we're forgiven that the passion to follow Jesus and to be obedient to His call should be because He loves us. Right? As a father, when I look at my kids and you know they're, they're rebellious, they're disobedient. I've often thought of, like, man, like, how does God look at me when I'm disobedient and when I fail? So then I take into perspective that in my humanity, I look at my kids and I love them, and, and I cannot think of something they would do for me not to love them. I love them. How much more our Heavenly Father loving us with a perfect love? 
So with this, I would suggest that if we're honest, all of us have areas in our lives that we have gone passive about letting sin continue or letting sin creep in. Or, even specifically, that the significance of baptism, of repentance, has lost its meaning. We kind of take it for granted. And we, we think pretty lightly of repentance. So may we cling to the Jesus that was obedient, to the Jesus that demonstrated a clear and very specific obedience to the Father, even in this commandment. And that His example will encourage us and would affirm us that when God looks at us, He says, This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Because He then looks at us through the eyes and the righteousness of Jesus. So that's why we need to trust in Jesus in His obedience not so that we get a free pass and go do whatever we want, but that out of our gratitude and our love for Him who loved us first, we would trust in His perfect obedience and be obedient ourselves. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon the obedience of Your perfect Son, May we be encouraged, Lord, when we fall and when we sin and when we become disobedient and rebellious towards you, that we do have the perfect one, that we do have the perfect representative, the perfect sacrifice that makes it all right for us. That is Jesus. Help us, Lord, to follow Him. Help us to listen to Him. Help us to go to Him so that His everlasting obedience would be credited to our account because we need it, Lord. Everything that Jesus did, not because He needed it, Lord, but because we needed it. And He offers that to us. May we take heed and grab hold of that, Lord, so that Your promise to save would be applied to us for our forgiveness. Thank You, Jesus. Amen.